0: Well, you should have a pew Bible in, uh, right in front of you, and if you would please, uh, even though the passage is printed in your worship bulletin, I would encourage you to open a Bible to Mark's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This begins the New Testament, and we're in Mark chapter eight. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church this morning. Thank you very much for being here. Little theologians, thank you for being here. Uh, Have you ever, little theologians, looked through binoculars? Put them up to your face, you look through and there's a round circle, yes, and everything becomes clearer. I want you to draw for me what you might see through binoculars if they're fuzzy. Don't draw anything clearly. So if you're not a good artist, this is your day. (laughs) Draw something fuzzy for me. Our passage is in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 11, and in fact, it is three separate scenes that I hope to tie together under a single theme. I believe that's what Mark—that's uh, the theme that Mark has for us, but I'll share that with you after we pray and read. So let's first of all pray. Father, here we are this morning, brought here by your sovereign hand, not by chance, and not by our own will. You have brought us to this place and you have promised to speak to us by your holy scripture. Your scripture is holy. It is our life. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us from your word this morning, such that as we go into this upcoming week, we are strengthened not with our will or our plans or our sense of purpose, but by your holy scripture working in us through your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Mark chapter 8, and let's begin at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the word of our Lord. Well, you heard it, didn't you? Three separate scenes land, boat, land. It is quite clear. What this passage is teaching us, stitching together this one theme among three vignettes. The passage teaches us what it's like to see clearly. I think Mark 8, verse 25 is very important. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The theme of the passage is somewhat near to that very verse. It has to do with not merely vision, but vision that is clear, that sees what's actually there. And Mark, uh, again, serving as, uh, in a way, a mouthpiece for Peter through the work of the Holy Spirit, begins with the first scene in verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees, they seem to be using their eyes to see whatever it is they want to see. And so they argue with Jesus, and they test Jesus. They're using their eyes to see what they want to see. But really, they're blind. And the kind of blindness I'm calling that in this first scene is a blindness of antagonism. A blindness of antagonism. They're arguing and they want to test Jesus. And then the second scene begins in verse 14. This is the scene that's on the boat. And this is the scene that is primarily about the disciples. Because the disciples, they don't seem to be looking at all. They have eyes, but they don't use them to see Jesus. Jesus. Well, the Pharisees, they're using their eyes to see whatever it is they want to see, but the disciples, they don't seem to be looking at all, and as a result, they don't see Jesus. This is a different kind of blindness here in the middle of the passage. This is a blindness of negligence, blindness of negligence. And that third scene that's oh so confusing, the scene of a hopelessly pathetic blind man who can't see at all, He is the one who is given the clearest sight of these three scenes. And in fact, in this passage, 22 through 26 of the blind man receiving sight, there's eight different Greek words that are used to communicate seeing. And in five verses, he goes from seeing nothing to seeing perfectly. And yet in this last scene is really the answer to the first two scenes. The answer to the blindness of antagonism and the answer to the blindness of negligence in the first two scenes are actually answered in the vision of the last scene where both kinds of blindness are averted. The disciples, in particular, have a blindness of negligence. I think that's where the applications of this passage reside, the disciples and their blindness of negligence. Sin, Jesus says, continues to exercise an influence on the disciples, and that influence works like leaven, and it works particularly on the life of a believer. And for that believer, Jesus even still strengthens them so that they're not blind by this leavening influence, and we need to talk about that leavening influence. The theme of this passage is that Jesus has the power to remove the blindness of negligence in the lives of his followers, but let's begin first by looking at this blindness of antagonism, that blindness that the Pharisees bring. You see in verse eleven that the Pharisees are clearly uh, looking for Jesus. They want to find him. Mark says that they came to him, but they seem to have been looking for him all the while. But it's also clear that what they're really looking for is not Jesus himself. Do you do you sense that even in verse eleven? What they're really looking for is not Jesus, not him, certainly not a relationship with him, but a sign from heaven to test him. And that's why as soon as they find Jesus, they begin to argue with him. It's the very first thing that they do, argue. They're not looking for him, but they're looking for what he needs to do for them. We don't know the particular argument that they enter into. Mark doesn't tell us for this particular instance, but we know that from their perspective, the only resolution for this argument, whatever it is, is that Jesus would do something to satisfy their wishes. He has to assume that all of the points that they're making in this argument are legitimate points, and that the only rational next step is simply this, Jesus, you must justify yourself. The argument was really over before it even started. They came with their complaints. They believe all, that their comp- all of their complaints are legitimate and that the only thing that needs to, do- needs to happen is that Jesus, well, he just simply needs to respond. Jesus has come to bring the good news of the kingdom of God, but they're not interested in that. He has to pass their test first. And what they want, Mark tells us, is a sign from heaven. And what what exactly qualifies for a sign from heaven, we're not told. But we really should put two and two together at this point and understand that whatever sign they're looking for, the sign won't matter. Their mind is already made up. And this is actually true for uh, those today who refuse to follow Jesus Those who refuse to follow him say that they have heard all that they need to hear. I've considered Christianity, I've found it lacking, and I've moved on. They, so to speak, have already tested him, and he didn't work, and they've moved on. An interesting thing is, is that they don't feel blind, they actually feel the opposite. They feel optically aware. I'm not blind, I've considered Christianity, and I've moved on. Well, they are blind. And in verse 12, Jesus, look what Mark tells us, he sighs deeply. This is Mark's code for exasperation. It may be that Jesus didn't sigh aloud. You've heard loud sighs before, how irritating that is. Maybe he sighed aloud, but it makes no difference because the disciples know exactly what's going on. Jesus is exasperated. Well, Jesus won't give them a sign, will he? We really should phrase it this way. Jesus won't give them another sign. They've already had enough, haven't they? Jesus has made himself known plainly. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, where we read the parallel account of this very scene, Jesus says that you Pharisees, you can look at the sky, and when it's red in the evening, you know that it's going to be fair weather. And when the sky is uh, red in the morning, you know that it's going to be stormy that day. You've received enough signs. You ought to be able to tell that I'm the divine one, the Messiah. And so Jesus, he won't give them another sign. And yet, the entire Old Testament has anticipated someone just like him. All of Jewish history has anticipated someone just like him. John the Baptist has actually called him out, pointed him out. World history anticipates someone like him and Persians from hundreds of miles away. They've also pointed him out. Creation anticipates someone just like him. And every person man, woman, child who refuses to be a follower of Jesus should know that creation anticipates someone like him. There is a longing in life. Our destitute hearts hope for someone like him, the one who can restore, the one who can make all things right. The circumstances of his birth were unprecedented and filled with eyewitness testimony. His miracles have been unprecedented and filled with eyewitness testimony. They should have read this like they could read the redness of the sky. Also in Matthew's account, it's not merely that Jesus will not give them a sign. He won't give them another sign. In Matthew's account, Jesus says that there's just one more sign for this generation— saying this even as he looks at the Pharisees. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah's resurrection from the great fish, his emergence from, uh, from death to life out of that great fish because salvation belongs to the Lord. Uh, that Jonah is the sign. And they'll know that sign at his own resurrection. That is the sign of Jonah. And that's the last sign for this generation. Well, we know where we stand in world history that not even the resurrection is enough to do for those who refuse to follow Jesus. Their blindness is a blindness of antagonism. Their rejection is not about Jesus per se. Well, it's about exposing where their heart has been all along. And if you look at verse 13, it ought to strike quite a bit of sadness, this before we move to the next scene. Jesus and his disciples get into the boat again, you see there. But remember that the Pharisees came to Jesus in verse 11, but what happens in verse 13? He left them. And that ought to strike us as a great sadness. So deep is their blindness of antagonism that Jesus leaves them. But beginning in verse 14, is a different kind of blindness. It's the blindness that's not on land. It's a blindness in boat with Jesus and his disciples. Uh, Jesus and the disciples are heading to the other side, we read in verse 14. They've just witnessed something. Let's not forget that. They've just witnessed the religious leaders of the day testing their very own rabbi. And Jesus had none of it. He spoke with them for, it seems, just a few minutes. And then he got into a boat and, and had them get into the boat with him. When we think of that deep sigh of Jesus, the disciples were aware of that deep sigh. Jesus won't give them the sign that these Pharisees are looking for, and instead he sighs. And there's something about that sigh that lasts even into the boat. And yet, there's an argument in the boat as well as on land. In the boat, someone, according to verse 14, mentions the word bread and the word forget, and that's enough. Look at that in verse 14. Would that stir up an argument in your mind? Someone mentions forgetfulness and someone mentions bread, and that's, that's about it. We don't know who brought the subject up, but we do know from verse 16 that it was a massive point of contention. and They begin to discuss, and that word for discussion is a strong word. It's a word for a debate and argument. And not only do we not know who brought up the subject, we actually don't know uh, why they would bring just one cake for 13 people. One cake of bread, 13 people. And Mark doesn't seem fit to tell us uh, who brought it up. Mark doesn't seem uh, fit to tell us uh, why they brought just one. And not a, not a commentator in the English language, it's the only language I can really read, uh, not a commentator in the English language uh, knows what exactly is going on here. I mean, in many ways, it could have been just an oversight. We all make mistakes. Someone packs the bag wrong, it's usually not me. It's usually not you either, is it? Someone makes a mistake. It could be they just packed the bag wrong. I thought you had it, no, I thought you had it. It could be there's just raving confidence that, you know, Jesus is here. Uh, Jesus, uh, He's the one who multiplies bread. Uh, One ought to be enough for Him, right? Let's just bring the one. It's a real space saver. We just don't know. But we know that it's not positive. We know that it's not because they have a positive regard to Jesus, the one whom they're traveling with. Because in verse 17, Jesus, he's aware of their argument, he says, why are you discussing? Why are you arguing over the fact you have no bread? You see, for Jesus, the, the kind of argument that they're having reveals a kind of blindness, and that's why he says in verse 17, do you not yet perceive or understand? anything is about bread, the argument about bread is revealing something more in the eyes of Jesus. He says in verse 18, having eyes to see, well, do you not see? And having ears to hear, do you not hear? He's actually been spoken. He's spoken this way before, uh, looking at Isaiah uh, chapter six, and he is uh, mentioning there Isaiah's words uh, about a people who hear but they don't understand, who keep on seeing but they don't perceive. It's a judgment. Isaiah six verses nine through ten is a judgment. Jesus has gone to that passage before, and it sounds like he's doing it again. But when he did it before, it was to non-believers, and now he's applying it to believers, his his own disciples. Well, the disciples do believe in Jesus. The disciples are saved. The disciples are followers of Jesus, uh, but for one, and we know that one. But they love Jesus, and and yet even still there's this kind of blindness that can afflict them. Uh, Not the blindness of antagonism, of course, it's the blindness of negligence. There's something about Jesus that they struggle to believe. They have a hard time applying Jesus to the ordinariness of daily life. Uh, many of us who believe in Jesus, we have, we have a hard time uh, living with Jesus, living according to Jesus in such a way that He is always controlling us, even in the ordinariness of life. In fact, as Christians, we know very well that it does tend to be things like food, preparations for trips, dealing with, with difficult people when dealing with any people. These ordinary things can oftentimes present challenges for us living the Christian life, can't they? Jesus says in verse 15, to watch out, to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, in Jewish and larger uh, Hellenic cultural settings, leaven was generally, not always, but generally a metaphor for corruption, something bad. And leaven is that yeast that works through bread and and actually causes that bread to rise. And uh, one commentator says, look, when you read yeast right here, you need to be thinking about three things. Yeast works invisibly, yeast works uh, uh, with great potent, it it does its work, and yeast works gradually. Invisible, potent, gradual. That's, That's how yeast works. And Jesus is saying there's a kind of yeast or leaven that's running through the hearts of the disciples. He calls it the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What's that mean? I mean, it could simply mean the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the teaching of Herod, but Pharisees are teachers, and Herod, Herod's not a teacher, is he? Uh, Herod is this uh, merciless political leader who killed John the Baptist and is right now hunting for Jesus. He's not a teacher No, I don't think that the leaven is the teaching of the Pharisees or the uh, teaching of Herod. Jesus says in verse 17, it's the kind of leaven that works very deeply, works at the level of the heart. It's the hearts that are hardened by this leaven. I believe the leaven is a couple of kinds of influence that afflicts the Christian life. One is an influence that Jesus uh, attaches to the word Pharisee. One's an influence that Jesus attaches to the word Herod. In Matthew 16, it's not Pharisees and Herod, it's uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. But Sadducees are very closely aligned with all political authorities. But the leaven is, an, is not a teaching necessarily, it's, a, it's an influence that somehow made it into your heart. That's the leaven. And you have to beware, you have to watch out, because that leaven, it works invisibly and potently and gradually. It's an appeal to look at your own heart. And the leaven of the Pharisees is this influence that has to do with religious expectations. The Pharisees, they're not about the Bible. They're about how they believe the religious life works. They followed man-made tradition. They didn't follow God. And we can do that too. We can fashion Christianity as we see fit, not as the Bible tells us it works. We think, for instance, that if we're truly blessed by God, we'll be wealthy. We think, for instance, that if we have enough faith, we will never experience suffering. We think, for instance, that if we force people to act better, then they'll be saved. This is the leaven of man-made religion. It's a religion in which we're not consulting God's revealed will in Scripture, the leaven of the Pharisees. The other leaven, that leaven of Herod, or as Matthew says, the leaven of the Sadducees, now that's an influence that's having to do with our uh, cultural accommodation. Herod and the, Saddu- and the Sadducees were not about the Bible, but they are about popularity and power and success and winning. They're about authority and rule. They are the aristocrats of the day who measured themselves based upon their wealth and power. We as Christians sometimes influenced by this kind of leaven as well. We sometimes fashion for ourselves a life not of holiness before God, a life that is pleasing to God, but a life rather that gives us popularity before the world. We want to be liked by others rather than pleasing to God. and This is the leaven of cultural accommodation. And here these disciples are, sitting in this boat, arguing about bread, and that argument has revealed something about their hearts. A a red sky has appeared in their hearts as a sign. And Jesus, he's reading that sign rightly. They forgot bread, and they're blaming each other. But Jesus can see the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod at work. It's invisible, it's potent, it's gradual. But he can see it. I want you to imagine this argument in the boat with Jesus himself with a slightly different perspective. Someone, a member of the disciples, have failed. They've forgotten something. But what they should understand is that as a Christian in our failure, there is hope. Jesus is saying to them, you're forgetful, but I am not. You're poor planners, but I am not. You are self-defensive and insecure, but I am not. You are worried about starvation and death, but I am not. And they continue in this way, and if they do so more and more, over time they'll begin to fashion for themselves a man-made religion. And over time they'll begin to accommodate to the expectations of the world. In 19 and 20, when Jesus reminds them what five lo- that five loaves fed 5,000 with 12 basketfuls left, he's reminding them of himself. And when he reminds them that seven loaves fed 4,000 with seven baskets left, he is he's reminding them of himself. Do you not understand who I am? Do you not understand who you are in me? And this is the blindness of negligence. In verse 22, they arrive at their destination, Bethsaida. It's debated exactly where they are, but this may very well be the home of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. This may also be the place where the feeding of the 5,000 actually took place. But I wanna ask you if you're ready for me to do something that you don't want me to do. Are you ready for me to turn five verses into about two minutes? Because you thought that answering what that saliva does You thought that that was the very core of the passage, but I don't believe that it is. In verses 20 through through 26, we find the only miracle of Jesus that takes place in stages, and this miracle occurs only in Mark's Gospel. And not a single commentator knows exactly what it is that Jesus is doing here. He places his saliva on a blind man's eyes, and then he lays his hands on the eyes a second time. And first the man sees large tree-like shapes walking around, and then he sees everything with clarity. But what I want to say to you this morning is that this miracle is really for the disciples. A pathetic man is given vision, but this miracle is really for the disciples. It's really for you and I as well as Christians who struggle to walk in this world with the influence of the Pharisees and the influence of Herod. People bring a man to Jesus and they beg Jesus to touch the man, and Jesus, he touches him. He touches his hand in verse 23. Do you see that? He touches his hand, taking him to a private location. Presumably, he does this so that he can be alone with the man, but also alone with his disciples. He shrinks the crowd down, Jesus and this man and his disciples. And Jesus touches the man again on the eyes along with his own spit. In verse 23, Jesus then asks him, do you see anything? I believe he asked that question for the benefit of, the, of his disciples. Do you see anything? Because in six verses, he's going to ask Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you see, Peter? That's six verses from this question. Do you see anything, he asks the man. And the man uh, sees, but, uh, and he sees accurately, but he doesn't see clearly, he sees walking shapes. Uh, what he sees is there. It's just not plainly visible. It's there, not visible. And he says this in the hearing, even of the disciples, so that the disciples hear what it is this man sees. And Jesus, without skipping a beat, almost as if, may I say, it's completely in his control. Without skipping a beat, Jesus lays his hands on him yet again, and he opens his eyes, and everything is clear and then Jesus sends him away. There are so many questions in those few verses that you want me to answer, and I'm not going to answer them. But this scene is here to show the only way that both both of the blindnesses are dealt with, the blindness of antagonism and the blindness of negligence. The blindness of antagonism is a failure to trust Jesus over self. If you're here this morning, And you're not a follower of Jesus. You are blind. And your blindness is a failure to trust Jesus, but a great confidence in trusting yourself. The blind man here is blind, completely hopeless, completely without help. He actually needs to be brought to Jesus. Did you notice that? He has to be actually manipulated to be brought to Jesus. Someone has to lay hands on him to bring him to Jesus. He needs others to even beg on his behalf. He's not begging. Others are begging on his behalf. And Jesus touches him, but notice that Jesus touches him without asking a single question. Jesus touches him and takes his hand that he might take him someplace by his own authority. Not the authority of the crowd or the others that have brought him. And Jesus, he brings him where he brings him to a safe place. And and Jesus, he immediately again without asking questions, he touches him in his point of need. He touches his eyes. The saliva is interesting, isn't it? But Jesus is taking something of himself, just him. His saliva is what goes on the man's eyes. His power is what touches the eyes. And Jesus restores not just his eyes, but his whole purpose. We're told by Mark that Mark restores the eyes. But we also know that the person is restored. The blindness of antagonism, well, that's dealt with by you giving up. That's you stopping to trust yourself, being led, being touched, being addressed, setting aside your own plan for restoration and setting it aside for good and allowing that restoration to come by someone else, Jesus alone. That's how the blindness of antagonism is dealt with in Christianity. It's setting everything aside and receiving that free gift that God has for you in Jesus. The blindness of negligence is a blindness related to the influence on a Christian's heart through daily life, ordinary life. The Christian life's difficult, not merely because of the world in which we live and not merely because of the work of Satan. Satan's real. But this leaven, it works deep inside of our hearts and it grabs hold because we're weak, we're frail as Christians. And the leaven works on our hearts invisibly and potently and gradually. And if we're not careful, a kind of a man-made religion begins to expand within us. We tell ourselves that we know very well how Christianity works and we know this better than Jesus. I don't even need to consult him. And worldly hopes and aspirations, uh, goals begin to intrude in our hearts, and we begin to give ourselves permission to seek popularity before the world and uh, earthly success before the world, to be admired and respected by those who actually don't follow our Lord. And soon, the leaven produces surprisingly large, empty cavities in our heart. And we didn't even notice its formation. And ironically, the yeast-infused heart grows not lighter, but harder and heavier and denser. The heart's vision is fooled. And people, well, people themselves begin to look less people-ish. But Jesus hasn't left us As Christians walking in this world and aware that we are subject to these two influences, uh, we have to remember that Jesus, he hasn't saved us to turn us loose. He has saved us to draw us deep into himself. He hasn't left us. Our vision is never secure enough to guide us, but he's right there. In fact, look at the man who he heals. He's not just right there, he's in your face and he's touching your eyes and he's teaching you how to see day by day by day. He gave me sight. I can say that as a Christian, but he also stays with me to give me clarity. I can say that as a Christian, and so can you. The application for the Christian who can grow negligent in their walk is this. Jesus says, watch out, beware, verse 15. He lays his hand on the blind man not once but twice. To a Jew, the laying on of hands by a rabbi was deeply significant." And as Christians, we need to remember the significance of that laying on of hands. One picture of the laying on of hands in a Jewish setting is the laying on of hands that a priest would do to an animal to transfer his sins and the sins of a people onto that animal. But that's not what happens here. Jesus, He lays His hand on the blind man, and His power, His potency works, not gradually, but immediately on this man. And Christian, that's you. You have the hands of Jesus always on you. And his perfect righteousness covers your unrighteousness so that you live a life not full of condemnation, not full of a desire to build something for yourself, a man-made religion, or a desire to be popular in the eyes of the world. You have the righteousness of Christ on you, his hands. They never left you. And this is what needs to come to mind in our Christian walk so that we might defend ourselves against the leaven of man-made religion and the leaven of cultural accommodation. We have been made holy by Jesus so that we might be sent to live holy lives. We don't forge ahead thinking that we have everything that it takes. We forge ahead knowing that we are covered by the hands of Jesus. He is our bread of life each and every day, and we come to places like this on the day of the Lord's resurrection to worship and be reminded that Jesus's hands are always on us. We fellowship with the saints to be reminded that Jesus's hands are always upon us. We pray to him, we study him in his word, and we come to meet him at this table to remind one another that Jesus's hands are always, always upon us. My brothers and sisters, he has saved us. My brothers and sisters, he is with us. As we prepare for the table, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for meeting us in your word. Thank you for meeting us in the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for meeting us on this Lord's Day worship. Thank you for meeting us in the prayers of the church. Thank you for meeting us um, in the uh, songs of the church. Thank you for meeting us in the partaking of the body of Jesus. Remind us that he is with us. In his name, amen.